So, God told you to write a book. Now what? Hi, I'm Wendy Jo Serna, author, narrator, wife, and mother. I've written and published two novels thus far, without really having any clue what I was doing. All I knew for sure was that I had heard from the Lord that I was to write a book. Beyond that, it was all just one grand adventure of faith, and a lot of work. And along the way, I learned a few things, things I'd like to share with you. If I can do this, you can do this. You can write your book. Hey, if the author and finisher of all things told you to do it, he believes that you can. And so do I. So come on. Let's write. Hello, authors, and welcome back to So God Told You to Write a Book, Now What? I'm Wendy Jo Serna, your hostess, and we are on episode number seven. Today's topic of conversation is, in the meantime, what do you do while you're waiting for the next step? I told you at the beginning of doing this podcast that I was going to take you along in the process of writing book number three. So this is where I'm at right now. I'm in the meantime. My manuscript, the first draft, is off to an editor, and now I need to wait. But what do you do in the waiting? So we're going to talk about that, and we're also going to talk about some practical tidbits about what is editing? What's the difference between a line edit, a developmental edit, a content edit, a copy edit, and proofreading? I don't know if I know exactly, but we're going to talk about it anyway. But first, let's talk about what do you do in the meantime? A lot of life is spent in the in-between times of things. I haven't put out uh, an episode for a few weeks because life is happening along the way. It's summertime. I'm still going back and forth with my elderly parents. I've got events happening here, and I also want to enjoy just the beauty of the Pacific Northwest in summer. It finally decided to become summer sometime after the 4th of July, which is kind of par for the course around here, but it's absolutely gorgeous right now. So being outdoors, enjoying events, enjoying family reunions and those types of things, hey, it's okay. And I'll get back to getting on track with a podcast, but also enjoying this process as well. But in the meantime, in writing, there are some, I don't know if downtime's the right words, but they're in between, where you your manuscript is in the hands of somebody else, and you need to sort of wait, but nothing, nothing you can do at the moment. But scripture talks a lot about waiting. There is, there's lots of verses if you just look up the word wait or waiting in both the Old and the New Testament. One of my favorite ones is in Isaiah 40, verse 31, very familiar verse. It says, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Those who wait for the Lord. That actual Hebrew word is the word kavah, which means to expect, to look for. It also means to entangle like a cord or a thread, to come together, collect, combine. So what are you entangling yourself with as you wait on the Lord? Something expectant. It's not a passive waiting, it's a very active waiting waiting. Even in the New Testament, when Jesus has resurrected and he's about to leave, go back up to heaven, he he tells the disciples, I want you to stay here. I actually want you to wait for the Holy Spirit who will come. 
And that word is to wait for something. So even in the middle of not actively writing, I am waiting for, I'm expecting something to come back. I'm going to receive something as I'm waiting because somebody else is now doing what they do. And then we will have some intercourse back and forth of what's the next step. But right now, I'm waiting for them to do what they do. I think about uh, in Luke, after Jesus is just born, and his parents take him to the temple. And it says, at that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. This word for waiting means expecting to receive the fulfillment of a promise, to await with confidence. Simeon had been waiting years, I dare say decades, and the Lord had promised him, you will not die until you see the Messiah. And when he holds that baby in his arms, what does he say? Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen the coming of the Lord. Beautiful. But that's a lot of years of waiting for. You have to entangle with the promise, expecting the promise to be fulfilled. After I wrote The Baby Catcher Gate, I felt like once you put it into the hands of the general public, then it's a whole nother kind of waiting. What do you want to get back? What do you want people to receive from your book? How do you want it to be processed? What do you hope to accomplish in people's lives? What do you want it to do? Are there promises that you have on the book that you're writing for the, the effect, the ripples that it sends out into the world? So I felt like one day the Lord said, well, what do you want it to do? And I, and I thought about that, and it very quickly, I wrote a proclamation over that book, and now I read it over my second book, and we'll read it over my third book as well. And this is what, I, I wrote it down, and I speak it out loud, and my husband also prays this over my books. We say, every book given away or purchased is exactly where it needs to be, doing exactly what it needs to do in individuals' lives. It is bearing much good fruit by the life-giving spirit who authored it. It is binding up the brokenhearted. It is setting captives free. It is removing a spirit of heaviness and replacing it with a garment of praise. It is transforming lives by renewing minds with a heavenly perspective. It is winsomely winning some. It is accomplishing what he desires and achieving the purpose for which he sent it to me and through me to the world. It is multiplying and spreading to places previously unimagined. It is opening doors and making room for me in places expected and surprising. It is revealing who I am in him. It is bringing glory to his name and honor and income to this Cerna household. That's my proclamation over my books. That's my expectant waiting promise to see fulfilled. And I get a lot of, not a lot, I get some feedback from people who read my books. I get texts, I get private messages and emails, and, and it's amazing what people are getting from my books. There are some crazy, wonderful stories that uh, keep me going about hearts that have been comforted, that have been bound up 
with fear and grief are now being freed with comfort and a spirit of heaviness is being replaced with a garment of praise because my books do come and go in the heavenly realm. So sort of tweaking minds and expanding spirits is part of my goal. I don't have all the answers. Clearly, nobody does. But I'm I'm okay with just pushing people to ask more questions about what is my option about interacting with heavenly realms or with the great cloud of witnesses or can I see what's happening? Can I inter- I don't I don't know all those things, but I let my imagination go freely with the Holy Spirit and I know that he promises that he reveals to us the things that no eye has seen and no ear has heard, or even the things that have never entered into the hearts of man. He reveals those things to us by the Holy Spirit. He promises that in Corinthians, right? And it says, even the deep things of God. For it has been given to us to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says that to his disciples when he's talking about the parables, and they ask him, why do you speak only in stories to these people? And he says, well, you know, for them, their eyes are not quite open, or their spirits aren't quite ready, and so I speak in parables that they could receive it. But to you, he says, to you who follow me, it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So I hold on to that promise, and I sort of let, let it rip in my books, and I try to remain as biblically accurate as I know how to be, and I'm, I am open to clarification and correction by the Holy Spirit and by friends or editors or whoever. But I let my imagination go into the heavenly realms because I want to, I want more of that myself, but I also want followers and believers and those who are seeking to maybe think a little differently and have their minds renewed or challenged in a new way. So I speak that over my books as the, I don't know where they're going to go, what they're going to do. I had a friend text me once. She was reading, she'd had the baby catcher gate for some time, but she was sitting in the hospital room. Her father had had heart surgery. And so there's a lot of waiting in waiting rooms. <laughs> and she finally had hours, extended hours to read. And it was in that place that this book came and touched her heart and encouraged her. And I thought, I think she was in California at the time. It's not someplace I could be at the time, but my book could be there. And at that point, the Lord told me, you know, there's the verses that talk about, look at the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, the Lord of harvest to send laborers into the field. And he said, your books are laborers. They can go places that I will never go, and they can speak into people in ways that I can't. They sort of dismantle all of the the editing and the walls and the boundaries that put up, and a story just goes around like sort of the back, into the back of the brain and into the heart and reaches into places. And each person who reads gets us something a little bit different, and because they are different, and then their lives are in a different place, and so different things speak to them. I had a friend who read The Agreements, who had had a lot of trauma in her early life and a lot of counseling to overcome that trauma. And when she embraced the idea that, okay, I'd actually seen my life ahead of time 
And I saw the difficulties and the challenges, but I also saw the goodness and the platform and the authority that I would gain by going through those that I would never have if I didn't go. And I agreed to it. And she embraced that idea. It, it's a hard idea to, I granted, I still have a hard time even agreeing with the agreements, but to empower people to say, oh my goodness, how big is my spirit? How big is my, the call on my life? that I am able to not only overcome those things, but to impact my world with goodness because I have overcome those things. And she said it brought so much freedom to her to remove a victim mentality from her soul to an empowered, overcoming believer mentality. That's what I want from my books, is for them to impact people and bring new freedoms into their lives. So in the waiting, I speak those things over. I don't know exactly how that's going to happen, but I'm expecting good things to come back. Also in the waiting, I sort of give myself time to do other things. Like just don't even think about writing for a while. Go spend time with my parents. Go spend time with my extended family. I like to do other creative things. Like I've taken up painting in the last few years. It was a COVID gift to myself because what else are you going to do? So I decided to just give those hours to mastering something new. And I'm not a master yet, but I'm improving and I enjoy the process of painting. And I find that doing something that's not word-based, that is more about color and whimsy and just fun for me, frees up places that get a little bit locked up when you get so intent upon words and story and development and characters and, and just set it aside for a while and let your soul go in other directions, and it frees up the writing process for me. I like things like gardening, going out into my garden and clipping roses or hydrangeas or whatever and making a bouquet. I like taking photos of my flowers. I like taking photos of my paintings. I, I have, uh, for the first time this year, I'm part of a farmer's market up in a local town just north of here, and doing that regularly, that's a new challenge, is putting my st stuff out there which is a little scary, but I'm enjoying it and spending time with a friend who's helping me do that. And that is something completely different than my writing, but it, it is very much me. And embracing more and more fully the you that you've been designed to be, I think is really part of what life is all about, what God wants for us. He says, arise and shine for the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. He wants us to rise up and be brilliant. Not brilliant somebody else, but just brilliant me. I love a quote by a man named Howard Thurman. He was an American civil rights leader and a philosopher, a social justice guy, but a very deep thinker. And if you want to challenge your brain and your spirit, read some of his works. But he says, don't ask what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come fully alive. So what makes you come fully alive? Besides your writing, is there some, are there other things that make you come fully alive? In the waiting times, and even in the writing times, find those things and give yourself to them. What brings you joy? What challenges you? What frustrates you even? Because sometimes <laughs> that's what brings you fully alive. 
So I just encourage you to think about those things a little bit, ponder them, put them before the Lord, and ask him, who do you say that I am? What have you designed me to be in this world? Maybe a scribe is one of the big things, but I'll bet there's some other things too that that just make you tick. So there you go. That's the uh, in the meantime part of the chat. I also want to talk about, so my so I have an editor right now, and this is a, the first time I'm going to work with this editor, so she has a little bit different process. In the past, when I've done a content or developmental edit, we'll talk about that, um, I've handed it over and just waited for a month or whatever until they would hand back a boatload of notes and critiques and advice and all that, and then I would apply it myself. This time, we're going to do a little more back and forth, like she'll do uh, several hours and then hand me back the edits, and then we'll go back and forth, and I'll work on them, and then we'll move on to the next thing, which I think will be a very interesting process and perhaps a little more productive and less intimidating than receiving the diatribe (laughs) of edits. So we'll see how that goes. So what is that first level of editing. Well, actually, right now, the first thing I did was I sent out my manuscript to about four trusted friends who are like first readers for me, beta readers, if you will, maybe not technically, but I've asked them just to look at it, read it, see if it even makes any sense. Because after a while, when you're so close to your manuscript, you sort of lose the forest for all the trees, right? It's hard to discern. You're a little too close to it. So just having fresh eyes look at it, And not look at it with great critique about grammar or structure or syntax or any of those things, but just is it readable? Does it make sense? Are there big holes? Is it confusing? Can you connect the dots? How does it feel once you've finished the book? So I have some friends doing that right now. But when it goes to the editor, the first level of editing that my editor, she calls it content editing. What is content editing? Well, listen, if you go on the internet and just and just ask, what is the difference between a developmental edit and a content edit? What's the difference between a line edit and a copy edit? What's proofreading? You will get about as many different answers as Carter has pills, right? I don't even know what Carter is pills. I know that was before my time. Anyway, so so a developmental edit, it says, focuses on big picture elements of the story and plays a deeper role in the manuscript development, like plot holes and character arcs, and pacing, and action sequences, and dialogue. That's a developmental editor. A content editor, this is what they say, is looking for more, digs a little deeper than a developmental. Developmental, big picture, big arcs, that sort of thing. Content editor does look at those things as well, but also digs into the words on the page, and some of the syntax, and the paragraphs, and the the flow, and is a, a little deeper than a developmental edit. In my first books, I've just done a developmental edit. I Now, granted, I did, with the first one, I, I did two rounds of developmental edits. So perhaps you could say I did a developmental edit and a content edit. So with a book that was right around 100,000 words, how much do you pay for that, right? There's different, some charge by the page, some by the word, some by the hours that they work. So For example, if you have a 100,000 word count document and they're charging 12 cents per word, you're at about $1,200 that you're paying for a developmental or a content edit. Now, generally, a content edit is going to cost you a little more because they're going to go a little more in depth and it's going to take them a little longer. 
But you need to ask those questions. How are you charging me? Are you charging me by the hour? Are you charging me by the word? Are you charging me by the page? So you get stuff back. You work through those edits, and then you feel like, okay, this this is much more, this cleaner. It seems much more cohesive. Now I need to send it to a copy editor. What does a copy editor do? Well, a copy editor is more about correcting things like spelling and punctuation and grammar and consistency, like you spell their last name the same in chapter five as you do in chapter 22, or their hair color is the same, or some of those consistency issues that maybe you just gloss over because in your own mind, you have seen it the same every time, but on the paper, it doesn't show up that way. So it's much more meticulous. It's detailed. Uh, The copy editors I've had have also done um, some fact checking. Like I have some historical context in some of my books. Is it true to the facts of those historical moments? As much as possible, I've done that, but maybe they're asking some deeper questions or uh, like with Baby Catcher, they actually sent some of the stuff out to a midwife to have her check. Is this accurate? Does this make sense? Is is it actually what could possibly potentially happen? And she gave me some feedback, and it was very good. I've had three babies, but I've never been a midwife, so I'm not familiar with all scenarios. So that was great. The copy editor helped me with that process. And then finally, proofreading. By the time you get to a proofreader, they are looking for uh, the smaller things, but the things that, you know, you've read it so many times that you don't see that it says from instead of form, or your Y-O-U-R instead of Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. So those, catching those some of those embarrassing things that when somebody else reads them, they go, oh my gosh, they missed that, ew. But you you just read it so many times, and even editors read it so many times that they they gloss over it. But a proofer is going to go through that one more time with a fine-tooth comb. So I liked this quote I read, well, somewhere, if I had it written down. I do. (laughs) He's an editor for Random House, and he says his job as an editor is to lay my hands on that piece of writing and make it better, cleaner, clearer more efficient, not to rewrite it, but to burnish and polish it and make it the best possible version of itself that it can be. Isn't it wonderful that there are people who want to do that for your book? I am trusting that I'm going to go through that process again. And yes, it's painful and it is challenging. But what's exciting is that on the other side of the editing process, you come out with a, what is it, a cleaner, clearer, more efficient, burnished and polished product to hand out to the world and go and do the things that are in your heart for it to do and fulfill those promises, right? Well, I hope that's encouraging to you. I don't know where you're at. I'm in the meantime, but I'm soon going to be back in the thick of it and we'll go from there. I sure love and appreciate you. Blessings and peace. Shalom, shalom. Shalom.